Revelation chapter number 1, starting with verse number 4, the Bible says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which was, excuse me, which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being your house. Fathers, we uh, seek to dive into your word. I pray that you give us understanding hearts and minds, dear Lord. Help us as we seek to preach, dear Lord, knowing that we can't do anything without you, but all things through you. Father, fill us with your spirit. Touch every heart, dear God, and help us to be more like you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And we look here, dealing with the book of Revelation, we're coming in again, uh, just a, a introduction as we start here, uh, looking at these uh, first three verses there again, John uh, threw an introduction there, speaking of uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is, a, it is Christ's revelation to the world there, it is what we refer to as the apocalypse there, an unveiling or an uncovering, and what we are seeing here is that uh, fulfillment of those end time prophecies there, the coming together and the glorification of Christ there. Now, uh, as we look here, and we look in these verses uh, 4 down through verse number 6 what we have is a clear cut testimony of the Trinity there we see God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit now though the word Trinity is not used anywhere in Scripture we understand that it's not you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the King James Bible you do see over and over again a reference to uh, the three persons there uh, the three the Godhead there in three persons over and over throughout Scripture now there are many uh, there are certain denominations, there are certain cults there, uh, many as a matter of fact that will tell you uh, that the Trinity is not, uh, that you will not find it in Scripture. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness goes so far as to say uh, a three-headed God would be a freak is, is the way that is uh, worded there with them. But what we see here through Scripture again is the threefold, uh, threefold person of God, the threefold power of God, and the threefold program of God. And what I mean when I say the program of God, I'm talking about redemption. When we look at redemption or salvation there, we see that redemption all throughout Scripture is a work of all three persons of the Trinity. Christ uh, paid the uh, price there on the cross of Calvary. God the Father sent His Son in place of man. God the Holy Spirit uh, draws the heart of man to see the need of salvation, always points them to Christ. They work together co-equally. There is never a jealousy. Uh, There is never a division among them. It is always a perfect unity, and it is always for the power and plan of God. Now, as we look here, this letter is written to the churches of Asia. This is not speaking of the continent of Asia. This is speaking of what we refer to as Asia Minor, what is today known as modern-day Turkey. Uh, There were uh, more than seven churches. There were at least ten that were uh, established churches at that time. One of those churches that's not listed uh, here is the Church of Colossae, or the Book of Colossians that we have there, the Epistle. Uh, several other, there was one to uh, Hyapolis there, was another church. Uh, several that were established, but what we see here, and we'll look more in detail when we get to Revelation 2 and 3 there, but those seven churches were picked for a specific reason there. They were representative, uh, not only of the churches were they literal churches, but they were representative of the church age from uh, Calvary or from Pentecost all the way down uh, to the rapture of the church there. 
They represent each one of those represents a different time frame, so to speak. But as we get here tonight, uh, what we're just going to touch on for a little while in these three verses here is we're going to look at that Trinity for just a minute. There, I want you to notice in the first part of verse number four, we see the majesty of the Father that is being spoken of. It says, "John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is, which was, and which is to come." Uh, what we look at here, we see a common. Um, a common salutation that is given there. Grace and peace. Many of what's called the Pauline epistles there. The epistles that were written by Paul uh, give that same introduction there. Grace and peace there. Grace was a Greek greeting there. Peace was a Hebrew greeting. Uh, the word peace there is the word shalom there. Now what it's talking about here, when it says grace and peace... Right, grace is an attitude that God has uh, towards the believer. Anybody that is saved today, God has an attitude of grace towards you. And it is always an unchanging attitude there. There is no, uh, we, we look at verses such as, as Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus there. It is a position of grace. It is a fixed position. When God looks upon us, friends, uh, the Bible says those that are saved are sons and daughters of God. If you think about your child tonight, anybody that's a parent, that child, though, uh, no matter age, no matter what that child has done or hasn't, uh, has or has not done, no matter where that child is uh, or where they may be going there, they will always be your child. That is a fixed position. Same thing when it is talking about the Christian there. We will always be in Christ there. And that is a position of grace there. When God looks down upon us and He sees there uh, the blood of Christ there, He can look on us in grace there. He can look on us in mercy. And it doesn't have to be in judgment there. The fact that we have grace there is God's attitude toward us tonight. It is always a loving attitude, a merciful attitude, an attitude that even when God has to judge His children, even when God has to chastise us, it is always with the desire to restore us, never with the desire to push us away. It is always in a place of, of restoring or restoration, bringing back into fellowship there. Even in judgment, it is still a position of grace for the child of God there. When he talks about peace... He is talking about uh, the peace we have through salvation. That's the relationship we have with God. He's also talking about the peace we have with fellowship with God. Now, though we can't lose our salvation, a Christian cannot lose their salvation, right. we can lose our fellowship. Right. We can break that fellowship. Sin hinders and, and puts that division between us and God there. And that relationship, though it is not severed, it is hindered at the time being there. Uh, again, uh, the, the best example I can give is a parent to a child. When that child is, has done wrong there and that parent has spanked that child and sent that child away there, put it, uh, sent him under their room there, disciplined them and sent him away, for that time being, there's a broken fellowship. Right? Now afterward, when that child comes and says, listen, I'm sorry for what I've done, uh, the, the parent offers obviously extends forgiveness. That relationship is restored. And that, that, that's, that fellowship is back to where it is supposed to be. Same thing with us and God. Uh, when we sin there, uh, the moment we confess our sin, the Bible says He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But until that time that we confess it, there is a hindrance between us and God. Amen. David there is one of the greatest examples of that. When we look in, in Scripture there, David stayed outside of the will of God. 
for a period of about a year after he had sinned with Bathsheba. We read about that. Uh, Psalm 32 off the top of my head there. David said, my bones waxed old there. He was talking about a, a, a dryness, his soul there just aching and hurting there. Talking about a uh, throbbing that was there because of the fact that he was outside of the will of God. When we look at Psalm 51, that great psalm of restoration. There's, this, there's that confession there. David comes and says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Bring me back into that right fellowship there. We know that God restored him and brought peace back into his home there. Friends, that grace and peace is what's being talked about here. But I want you to notice when we see the majesty of the Father there, we see the eternal presence of God. He says there, which is and which was and which is to come there. This is talking about the eternality of God. The fact that God always has been always is and always will be. There's never a time that He's not been God. There's never a time uh, when one of the hardest questions that a child will ever ask you, when was God born? Friends, we can't explain that. We cannot explain the fact that God has always existed, will always exist. He is God now. He was God then. He will be God tomorrow and forever after there. That's the eternality of God there. We look there and there are many verses in Scripture that testify uh, to that very thing as we look at Psalm 90 and verse number 2 there, the psalm that... uh, that Moses had wrote there, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. When we look at Psalm 93, excuse me, Psalm 93 and verse number 2, Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting there. It is an eternality of God. Now when we look here, and whenever we see this phrase, it's talking about He which was, which is, uh, which is, which was, and which is to come. Again, it is a, a giving reference to God the Father. He's talking about that, that eternal God there, uh, talking about His power. John Butler, uh, excuse me, stated it, John Phillips stated it this way, uh, God reads the past, rides the present, and rules the future. He controls all things. He knows all things. That's why we have this book here. Though the, the events have not taken place, Although these events have not fully come to pass yet, we know that they will come to pass because God has promised them. And you say, preacher, how do we know? How can we trust the book of Revelation? How can we trust that what, what is being said is going to happen, is really, that it's really going to come to pass? Friends, we can turn back to the Old Testament. That's right. We look back there and we see what God had promised thousands and and hundreds of years ago many times that we look over and over again uh, this book is full of what is called prophecies uh, what is uh, promises that God has given over and over we look at those things and every one of them has come to pass none of them has failed we look there and and we see over 300 test uh, over 300 old testament prophecies of the birth of Christ the birth is his sacrificial death there. We look at Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, one of the greatest examples. Psalm 22 and verse number 1, the very opening verse there. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very words Christ cried out on the cross there, friends. That psalm was written 1,100 years before Christ ever came to the earth there. He perfectly describes the crucifixion. They've pierced my hands and my feet. He describes crucifixion 850 years before it is even used as a form of death. 
We look there and we see Old Testament typology there. Every sacrifice, every picture, every shadow, all of it pointing towards Christ there. Years before Christ ever came, we look at Isaiah 7 and verse number 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. That was written some 750 years before Christ came to earth. We look at Micah 5 2, and it talks about old Jerusalem where Christ would be born some 400 plus years before he came. Friends, all of it is in the perfect plan of God. And if He's been faithful in the past, He'll be faithful today. He'll be faithful tomorrow. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we can stand on verses that say, God, which is, which was, and which is to come. We know He is the everlasting God. We know His promises are faithful and true there. And in that eternal presence of God, we have peace today. We can rest in that eternal presence of God. We can rest in the fact that God has never not been God. The Mormons will teach you by their doctrine that by doing so many good works, you can elevate yourself to the level of God. They say Jesus was at one time a man. God had a wife. And through the the good works that they've done, they elevated themselves. That's why they have uh, every uh, male Mormon is, is required two years of missionary work. They're trying to elevate themselves to that level of God. Friends, I'll be honest with you. I am so very thankful that that, that salvation, my salvation, has absolutely nothing to do with me. If it were up to me, I, I wouldn't be saved today. If it were up to me, I certainly couldn't keep it. I thank God it is secure in one that's never failed. Thank God it is authored. Uh, Again, a perfect work of the Trinity there. God the Father sending His Son, willing to give His Son there, turning His back on His Son and accepting the payment of His Son. Christ coming and living perfectly for you and I there, dying in our place there, paying the penalty you and I couldn't pay, being that perfect sacrificial Lamb. God the Holy Spirit coming and drawing our hearts there, showing us we're sinners, showing us we need to be saved. Friends, I thank God that salvation is the finished work of Christ and not ourselves. If it were up to us, we'd be in bad shape today. Not only do we see that, though, it talks about the eternal presence of God, but the eternal program of God. Where it talks about, uh, which is to come now, uh, Napoleon made this statement. If you know anything, I, I like history. History goes along with the Bible beautifully. History does not contradict it. It flows perfectly with it. But Napoleon made, the, uh, made this statement. He said, I make circumstances. What he was talking about was in the height of, of his uh, victories and all the battles that he had there, he was talking about how he controls the circumstances. Friends, God's got an amazing sense of humor. When we think we're in control of things, sometimes that's right when God kicks our feet out from under us and shows us just how little control we have. We look at play, uh, battles like the Battle of Waterloo. We look at several others. There's at least four others where Napoleon was defeated by things that were seemingly outside of His control. Things that that, uh, weren't supposed to happen, so to speak. Those circumstances that caught Him off guard there and He lost those battles. Friends, it goes to show us just how little control we have. But when we talk about the program of God, there is not one detail that is going on in this world right now that God has not only known about, accounted for, but has worked into His perfect plan. Not one. When we look at things, again, we can go back to the Old Testament and we can look and we can see the power of God. And we can see Him controlling that. When we look and we see that God uses even the Gentiles, even the lost, 
to fulfill to perfectly fulfill his plan when he talks about Darius, uh, the king of the Medes and the Persians, there in the book of Daniel, how he was his servant. He controlled his heart. Then when we look at Nebuchadnezzar, how God took a man that was so very arrogant and so very prideful, no doubt at one time the most powerful man in all the world there. And we look at Daniel chapter 4, and God drove him out into the wilderness like a wild man. Literally took his mind from him and caused him to live like an animal in order that he would confess that God is all-powerful. Friends, when we look at uh, Pharaoh in in the times of Exodus there, uh, when Pharaoh ruled the world by his power and by the might of Egypt there, and yet God hardened his heart and directed him, friends, just the way he wanted to. Uh, I believe the, the best example I've ever heard used of this when it was talking about a master chess player. When you have somebody that is skilled in the game of chess, When you have somebody that has reached that status of a master, he can play an opponent. And he can allow an opponent to make moves in which that opponent thinks he's winning. But all the time that that master chess player is getting ready to to, uh, sweep behind and, and declare checkmate. That is exactly what God does behind the scenes. Friends, Satan is not ruling anything. He is not in control of anything. We understand the Bible says He is the Prince of the power of the air. Yes, He is powerful, but God is all-powerful. We look today at these atheists, and we look today at these uh, that are standing up there saying they're going to do away with God. My Bible says uh, that upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, no one is going to stop God. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall remain. That is all part of the eternal program of God. When we stand in His presence... And we are brought in there. Everything that He said would come to pass will be perfectly fulfilled and we will see it for the first time there. Not only do we see the majesty of the Father in the first part of verse 4 there, but we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the second part of that verse there. Look at the second part. It says, And from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Uh, this, This phrase here, the seven spirits, can be a little bit confusing. It makes it seem almost if if we don't look at if we look at it and just take it at face value, it makes it seem as if there are seven individual spirits that are being talked about. That's not what's being referred to here. What's being talked about? Uh, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. What is being talked about there is the completeness or the fullness of the Holy Spirit is giving reference to the Holy Spirit as being before the throne of God. Now, let me give you an example. Again, we can go back to Scripture and show you what I'm talking about in Isaiah 11. In verse number 2 there, we look here and we see a sevenfold uh, ministry or a sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit that's being talked about. Uh, chapter two, ver- uh, chapter 11, verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord there shall rest upon Him, a uh, spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, a uh, spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord there. Seven things that are listed out that show that the completion of the Holy Spirit there. He is the Spirit of the Lord there. Uh, He is the Spirit of wisdom. He is the Spirit of understanding. Uh, He is the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord there, friends. Uh, Seven different ministries, seven different perspectives, seven different what we call attributes that make up one person. Now, when we talk about an attribute, we're talking about different parts of a personality, different uh, personality traits. Someone can be strong-minded. Someone can be tender-hearted there. Somebody can be compassionate, uh, but they don't have to be just one thing. We, we have many things that make up our personality, so to speak, there. Uh, it's still one person, still one personality, but it's many attributes that make it up. When we talk about the Holy Spirit there, He's talking about that set, those seven spirits. 
He is talking about seven parts there that make up that complete Holy Spirit of God there, uh, that person of God there. We see also the perfection, again the number seven, the number of completion, the number of perfection there, and it is talking about that work that the Holy Spirit does there. It is also talking about the place there of the Holy Spirit. It says, before His throne. Now this is amazing to me, because the Holy Spirit is perfectly equal, co-equal, with God the Father and God the Son. And yet it does not say that the Holy Spirit is seated on the throne, but is seated beside the throne or in front of the throne. It's a place of service. When you think about a king's throne there, many times that cupbearer, that protector, would be standing off to the side of that throne there. That was a place of service. What we see here, again, no jealousy, absolutely, perfectly, um, perfectly interdependent of one another, working together there, no division, no, uh, no jealousy, no nothing there. What an amazing testimony. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three very, uh, absolutely co-equal parts of God. Co-equal persons of God. Uh, they cannot be divided. There is not one that is above another. But they serve in different positions. You say, preacher, explain that. I can't. I'd be very weary of a person who could, to be honest with you. But what we see here is the absolute perfection of God. Friends, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in three separate ways. Now we see this, again, it's not just the Holy Spirit. We see it ministered in Christ. When we look at the Gospels, over and over again, we see Christ always submissive unto God the Father. Always in a place of obedience. Always in a place of humility. We see the Holy Spirit all throughout Scripture. You will not find one place where the Holy Spirit exalts Himself. He exalts Christ. Matter of fact, if any, off the top of my head, I don't believe there are any, where you will see the Holy Spirit exalt God the Father. It is always exalting Christ. Now the fact that they are perfectly working together in that manner, perfectly equal there. Does the Holy Spirit deserve as much praise as God the Father? Absolutely. Is He just as much responsible for creation and redemption as God the Father? Absolutely. Is Christ the Son just as equal with God the Father? Absolutely. Now, if there's no jealousy among them, how much more so should you and I as His children be willing to serve in any capacity that we can? We see the position of that Holy Spirit there. It's been said this way, that the Holy Spirit was God's executor. He was the executor of God's purposes there. Today, that is a purpose of grace. During the tribulation time, it'll be a purpose of government. It'll be a place of power, a place of authority. Again, the Holy Spirit today works in the hearts of the lost there in grace. He is tenderly drawing our hearts. He's tenderly drawing the lost to see the need of salvation, showing them Christ, pointing them to the cross of Calvary. That after the rapture, those that have rejected Christ and refused Christ, it will be a place of government. It will be a place of judgment. That Holy Spirit, I will be that one that executes that judgment with great power and great authority there. Not only do we see the majesty of the Father, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but last of all tonight, we look and we see the mercy of the Son in verses 5-6 through six here. We see a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ there in His fullness. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, and to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, 
Follow with me just a couple minutes. And we're going to dive into this and, and then we'll close out tonight. What we see here that is mentioned is not only in these verses do we not only see the Trinity that is being talked about, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but we also see the three uh, the threefold um, office of the Lord Jesus Christ being mentioned, prophet, priest, and king. We see the fact now, all throughout the Old Testament, you never had anyone that held all three offices. You could have someone that was a prophet and a king. David there gave prophecies. You could have someone that was a priest and a prophet. You could have someone that held two of the three offices or one of those offices, but nowhere in Scripture do you ever have anyone that holds all three apart from Christ there. Now, when we look here, talking about that prophet, it says he was the faithful witness. Jesus as the prophet was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. We see that in John 1, 1 through 3 there. Uh, we see him as the, pro- uh, the God, excuse me, the prophet, uh, the faithful witness. We see him as the priest, the first begotten from the dead. If you look at a priest there, their job was to present that blood. They presented that blood of that sacrifice. That's Jesus as the Lamb of God. When we look there and we see him as king, it talks about there that place of authority there. We look at him, see him, a prince there of the kings of the earth there. Uh, again, speaking of, of uh, Jesus as the king there, he is the lion of God. All three offices are held perfectly. All three positions are held perfectly by the Son of God. He is the fullness. One of the greatest books that speak of the fullness of Christ is the book of Hebrews. When we see Christ in the book of Hebrews, the whole theme of that book is Jesus Christ better than. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Uh, He's presented as better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than Aaron, uh, better than the priesthood, all of those things. He is the perfect Son of God there. And we see that again, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, uh, just a couple things and we'll close tonight. We see the glory of the Son in verse number 5 there. He is the resurrected Lord, the first begotten from the dead there. Uh, that phrase there, first begotten, or those words there, it's the Greek word, uh, protokos there. And what it, it speaks of is, is priority and sovereignty. First begotten of the dead, He is the first one to break the bonds of death. That means that sin in its fullness was paid for. Sin in its entirety was paid for. The fact that Christ rose from the dead shows us that every sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for and is under the blood today. Had there been one sin left unpaid, Christ could not have rose from the dead. Because the Bible tells us very clearly, the wages of sin is death. That means the payment. If you think about your wage, you go to your job, you punch in, you give your time, they give you a wage. That's your payment for the work you've done. The payment for sin was death. We read about that all the way back in Genesis 2, verses 17 and 18. In the day ye eat of the fruit thereof, ye shall surely die. Death came upon all men, the book of Romans tells us there. The fact that Christ is the first begotten, that He rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave shows us uh, that He has the sovereignty, that He has the authority, uh, that He has the priority, and that He paid for death in its full, He paid for sin in His fullness there. He is the first begotten there. He is the resurrected Lord. He is the ruling Lord is what it talks about there. And the prince of the kings of the earth there. Friends, we, we, we see there Christ in His position. Now looking at that, Moses there uh, in the law, he dealt with the deeds of sin, the fruit of sin, so to speak. Christ dealt with the very desire of sin. He dealt with the root of it. Right? Moses in the law, 
pointed out the need of a Savior. Christ is that Savior. Moses in the law showed man's inability. Christ became our ability. He became a death for us there. Purchased that. What we see there in Moses, Moses showed the need. Christ showed the fulfillment of that need there. We see that perfection, friends. Not only do we see the glory of the Son, but we see the grace of the Son in the last part of verse 5 and verse number 6. It says, Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins. Uh, the Greek word loved, that, that is used for loved us there, what it speaks of is a continual love. You could actually put the word loveth or continually love there. He continually loved us. It's an everlasting love. And washed us. The word washed there, uh, the Greek word for that means to loose from, means to break the bonds or, or the chains thereof, to set us free. We have been pardoned of that sin there. He loved us, washed us, set us free there, took away the, the stain of sin. Isaiah 1 and verse number 18. He said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be made as wool there. He washes that stain away. He comes and He has set us free, broken the bonds of the sin that we were in there, loosed us, and put us into a place of victory there. Uh, that's grace tonight, friends. He loved us, He loosed us, and He lifts us is what verse number 6 says. Last of all, we'll finish with this. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, and to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever there. He hath bestowed on us all the majesty of a prince and all the ministry of a priest. He has taken us and given us a great place, not only of authority, but a great place of praise there. The fact that we are princes, made us kings and priests there. He has put us into a wonderful place. Friends, we see there the threefold uh, position of Christ. We see the threefold work of the Trinity there in redemption that God has set us up. Now, he's, uh, all of this, John is giving by way of introduction. What he is doing there is he is showing us the authority of God in bringing about that final judgment, the power of God there, the person of God, the program of God in redemption. He is showing us that Christ is all in all. That He is powerful, that He is providential, that He is sovereign tonight, friends. You have heard me say this many times. And I say this all joking aside. If there is anything your God can't do, you need a different God. He is all in all. He is the fullness. Every need we ever have is met in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. That's why we can stand before God perfect. That's why we can be presented in such a light. That That's why we can be made kings and priests. Because of who... Christ is and what He's done for us tonight. Let's all stand, heads bowed, and eyes closed.